Children are dismissed. Children are dismissed. You can head back there. I'm not sure which children, but some of them. And parents, you're welcome to keep them in here too if you want. If that's something you prefer to do, we're totally cool with that. So, um, well, Ron, thanks for reading God's Word to us. We're in Acts 16. You will be helped if you have it open in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, there should be a Bible and a seat back um, in front of you, um, or you can grab one back there. So, freedom and unity. Freedom and unity. Thomas Chittenden is the, was the first governor of the state of Vermont, and he is credited with having declared that Vermont is the home of freedom and unity. That motto for Vermont has remained as its motto to this day, freedom and unity. Two seemingly opposing ideals, personal freedom and independence on the one hand, with the common good of the larger community on the other. Two things, freedom and unity, that I suspect many of us here this morning are very interested in preserving, maintaining, possessing. How can we know? How can we experience true meaningful freedom and unity. Do we have to go to Vermont? No, thankfully. While it's the banner that waves over that state to this day, it is, I believe, in studying the text, the banner that waves over Acts chapter 16, verse 11 and 40. What we're going to see this morning as we walk through this text is that the power of Jesus can bring freedom and unity to all kinds of people. I'll say it one more time. The power of Jesus can bring freedom and unity to all kinds of people. Therefore, church, we can be encouraged in our walks with Jesus, and we can be expectant in our prayers to Jesus. Because the power of Jesus can bring freedom and unity to all kinds of people. As a church, we have been marching our way faithfully through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves this morning in a very interesting section. This is, for many of us, likely stories that we have heard growing up. If you've been familiar with church and maybe been around church for many years, these are very popular stories. They're exciting stories. And really, as we read this section, what we see is the power of Jesus. It's like he's just showing off. His power is just simply on display. It is so hard to miss in this text. This is a really significant moment in the story of Acts because for the first time, the gospel of Jesus reaches the continent of Europe, and it will change, as it does so, the course of human history. This is no small moment in history. Paul and Barnabas, if you remember previously, had decided to go separate ways. They had been ministry partners but there's a desire for Paul that he declared to go back to the cities on, uh, on the second journey that they had previously visited, and he wanted to go back and encourage them. Barnabas insisted on taking his cousin John Mark. Paul said, no, he failed us once. What's to say he's not going to do it again? And so as a result, the one team turned into two teams. Barnabas took John Mark and then went to Cyprus, their home area, and Paul marched his way through Asia Minor. And what we saw last time that we read the, the, this section was that previously God had closed some doors as Paul, taking Silas and Timothy with him, would eventually close some doors and say, no, you can't go that way. If you remember, he has this Macedonian vision uh, standing on, in Troas, uh, the edge of the Aegean Sea across the sea. He sees a man from Macedonia calling for him, come and help. And so 
They make their way now into Macedonia, having received that vision. If you notice in verse 10, the, the narrative shifts, and we pointed this out last time, that Luke now joins. It says in verse 10, we. So, so the idea is that the narrator is now a part of the story. He joins them in Troas, something that Luke is likely from Philippi, because we'll see he joins them right before they go to Philippi, and then as they leave, Luke remains there with them in Philippi. Now, this is a, a really fascinating story. And as we read the story, there is likely, during the time that they spent in Philippi, there's likely lots that Luke could tell us about their time in Philippi. However, Luke chooses to focus on three people. Luke chooses to sort of zoom our attention and all that God did in this region and tell us the story of three individuals. And as he does that, what Luke is trying to show us, I believe, is the liberating power of Jesus. So as we kind of zoom in on these three characters, we'll kind of first zoom in and then zoom out. So the first move, we'll look at the, the who of the story. And as we examine the who, we'll discover the liberating power of Jesus. The first character that we come across is Lydia. Now, Paul... In Silas, Paul's normal tactic, his normal strategy, you may recall, as he goes into a new region, is to primarily first find the synagogue and go directly to the synagogue. It's, it's his first sort of strategic move when he gets into a new area. Find the people who have some knowledge of the things of God, who are spiritually interested. Find them. Well, Paul cannot find them because there is not a synagogue. In verse 13, it said, instead of going to the synagogue, he goes outside the city to the riverside where there is simply a place of prayer. Now, in ancient days, it would have required there be 10 men in order for there to be a synagogue. So what we can conclude from this is that there are not 10 men in the city, 10 Jewish men in the city. So there is no city synagogue. So when there's not a synagogue, the people who are interested, maybe have some familiarity with the God of the Bible, the Old Testament, they will come together and they're allowed to go outside of the city and simply have a place of prayer. And so that's precisely where Paul goes, outside the city. And as he goes there, he discovers a contingency, a group of women. Told that he comes across a woman named Lydia. Now, there's a few things that Luke tells us about Lydia that are important. First of all, she's from Thyatira. This is located in Asia Minor. Now, this is fascinating, because if you remember, just previously, Paul was making his way through Asia Minor, and he was stopped by the text says, the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus closed a door so that he could not continue on. But instead, he goes to Philippi, he goes to Europe, and there discovers a woman who was from the very place that God had closed a door for him. So here she is. She's a woman from Asia Minor who's, who's come to this area, and she's a seller, we're told, of purple goods. In her particular region, dyes were, were, were commonplace, and, and selling purple goods meant that she was a woman who had some wealth. She had some, an entrepreneurial sort of spirit. She was a woman of means. She was likely a savvy businesswoman, successful. And she was also, the text tells us, a worshiper of God. She was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who was open to the things of God. And then we're told, miraculously, that as Paul and Silas begin to talk to her, that the Lord opens her heart. 
so that she begins to understand the things that Paul is speaking. He says that in verse 14, and immediately she's baptized. Now, it's worth noting that early Christianity received perhaps its greatest deal of criticism precisely because of its popularity with women, because of how popular the movement was among women. Pliny the Younger, Lucian, all these early critics of Christianity, one of their main critiques of the movement was how welcoming they were to women. Sociologist Rodney Stark estimates that perhaps two-thirds of the Christian community during the second century was made up of women. This is especially staggering when you consider that he says probably only one-third of the population in the ancient Greco-Roman world was women. And here, the inroads into these communities, we see women at the center. This is not uncommon. Certainly, this critique turns the tables on today's overused criticism that early Christianity was a patriarchal, misogynistic religion that was hostile to women. This would challenge that. Though that claim is repeated ad nauseum, it's hard to sustain in the context of the ancient world itself. In fact, it seems more true of the non-Christian Greco-Roman elites. Women were critical. They were responding to the gospel. And here's this woman at the very heart, one of the, the, the first convert that Luke brings our attention to in this region was a successful, savvy businesswoman who was also an immigrant. This is really fascinating. Second individual couldn't be more different. The next individual he turns our attention to is a slave girl in verses 16 to 17. The complete opposite, likely, of Lydia. She was a girl who was enslaved. She was demon-possessed. She would have had no social power, no status, no freedom. She was under demonic power. The, the actual word here is a python spirit, which was symbolic in Greek mythology with the ability of telling the future. She's not suffering from a mental illness. She is oppressed by a demon. So Paul sets her free from that power, and he does so in verse 18 by, the, by a different power, by the name of Jesus. Here is a girl who's been oppressed, who's been dehumanized by this demon, exploited by other people. And what does Paul do as the gospel is preached to her? He rehumanizes her. And this is what the gospel of Jesus does. It liberates people from the oppression and the power of Satan and rehumanizes them. And in verse 19, it says, but when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone, you notice that phrase, that her hope of, it's the exact same phrase that, that was used previously when it talks about the spirit going out of her. Well, when the spirit goes out of her, their hope for gain goes out of them. How sad and how pathetic. Where Paul sees a human that's valuable, that has dignity, that has potential, 
Her owners simply see her as a revenue stream, as a way to make money. So as you can imagine, they're upset, as the text tells us. They grab Paul and Silas, beat him, and throw him in prison. It's important to notice that the gospel not only freed this girl personal liberation, but it also caused a social disruption. Look at verse 20. It says that they were accused of disturbing the city. This is no small thing that they did, right? These strangers come into the community. What right do they have to take our means of gain away from us? So a riot essentially breaks out. And for this girl, the disruption was a welcome thing. But for the proud who find their significance, their worth buried in this world, deep in their pockets, related to material gain, the gospel is a deeply threatening thing. The same gospel, two very different responses. Freedom for one, anger from the other. Church, this should challenge us. Have we, as a church, been ever accused, or have you, as a follower of Jesus, ever been accused with disturbing your community? What if you were? What what if we were? What if there were accusations leveled against us that our faithfulness to the gospel, our our determination to speak Jesus' name, is causing a disturbance? God's word this morning says, that's not a bad thing. In fact, that likely will happen. It likely will happen as Jesus' power goes out and transforms lives. There will be some who are given new eyes to see, who move from the darkness into the light, who experience new life, and it's to be celebrated with joy. And there's others who will be so irritated so disturbed by what's happening. And our response as faithful followers of Jesus is not to determine which response is going to happen and sort of play to the crowd. Our, our, our response is to be faithful to preaching the gospel of Jesus and give the results to God. How about we pray that our faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus would disrupt our community. I challenge you to pray that prayer this week, that we would be the type of church that that takes the light and, and shines it into the darkness, where there's exploitation, where there's dehumanizing activity, where there's human pride and greed that reign, where there's darkness, that our faithfulness to the gospel in our community would create a disturbance. Thirdly, third character we see here is the jailer. Verse 25, we see that having been beaten by the mob, they're now incarcerated, put in jail. And the setting in verse 25 tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I confess, historically, as I've read this story, the way I have interpreted this verse is that these men are just bold and courageous. And they are. Don't get me wrong. Don't forget that their singing and crying and praying to God comes on the heels of receiving a tremendous beating. (laughs) They're hurting. 
Likely, as they're in their cell, they're seeking the Lord, not as a means necessarily to proclaim him and to let everybody know about him, but, but likely as a, as a crying out to him for comfort for the whooping that they just received. God, help us. God, save us. They are dependent on God. It's not necessarily an act of boldness, but a desperate act of, to find comfort which is ultimately rooted in their hope that only God can provide that. And so they, they sing songs that remind them of the truth that they need to hold on to in their darkest moment. They cry out to God. They, they pray prayers that serve as an encouragement to one another. As I was reading this this week, what I kept thinking of is this in some ways is a picture of what we do every Sunday when we gather and worship. Some of us walk into this room every Sunday feeling completely beaten down by the world around us. And we're looking for a place to find hope, to seek comfort, to have our wounds healed. And what do we do? We come into this room with brothers and sisters who, who, who believe in the same Jesus, who have the same needs, who, who have the same desires and requests. And we sing songs that remind us of the truth of who we are and why we are the way we are. Remind us of the gospel. And as we sing those songs, we hear brothers and sisters, we hear songs well up to God. And it's encouragement to one another. I'm not in this alone. Yeah, this week was bad, and who knows what next week holds. But I belong to the people of God, and we are a people of hope. And because of that, we should remain a people of prayer. You can say amen. Can you say amen? I heard you say it last week. Amen? amen. Come on. Why, you can talk for Andy, but you can't talk for me? I'm here every week. Shoot. Say something. Thank you. Every Sunday, we walk into these rooms, into this room, having been beaten up by the world around us. This is a place where we remind one another of the hope we have in Jesus that we are renewed in strength and sent back out into a world. As they're in there singing songs, you know the story goes, verses 25 to 34, there's an earthquake. The doors are opened. The jailer sees what has happened. He's ready to commit suicide. This would have meant his life. A total failure at his job. And Paul yells out and stops him in verse 29. The jailer calls for lights, rushes in out of fear. I think the most miraculous thing in this whole story is that it says every single prisoner was still there. They didn't go anywhere. Not just Paul and Silas, but the whole jail. They were all still in their cells. The jailer is amazed at what he has seen. Likely not because of the earthquake, but because everybody's still there. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And the response that he's given by Paul is amazing. What? Remember, this is a man. He's likely a Roman citizen, a retired military man. His entire identity was built on his performance. And if he fails at his job, he dies. You better believe if there's anybody who's motivated to perform rightly, it's him. 
And so it makes sense that he says, what must I do to be saved? But notice what Paul's response is. He doesn't say, here's what you have to do. He doesn't provide him a checklist or a new job description. Instead, he simply says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because what must be done has been done when Jesus died on the cross. And all you have to do is believe in the finished work of Jesus. And you and your household will be saved. You don't have to do anything. Your identity before God is not primarily based on your performance, but on how Jesus performed when he was obedient to the Father, Father, totally to the point of death. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Paul's message to the jailer was a message of grace. You don't have to do anything. It's already been done. Then we're told that he speaks the word and the jailer immediately. Notice how the the gospel penetrates his heart and his response is to open his home. Gets baptized again immediately after conversion. Oftentimes I was reminded last week that we leave that out. It's as followers of Jesus, we are to be obedient to his word and we see examples of it all over the place. Believed and was baptized. And the gospel is already transforming his life. The text says that they go into his home. It it turns instantly into gospel hospitality. Has these individuals who were locked up in jail now into his home as he cares for them, as as he bandages their wounds. And this is how the church of Philippi started. This is how the grace of God was poured out in this city. Three unlikely people. A wealthy woman, demonized girl, and a middle-class man. Now, if you go to the end of the story in verse 40, it says, as they're on their way out of town, the final picture we're left with is that Paul and Silas stop by Lydia's home on the way out to encourage them. This is where the first we section ends, so Luke remains. And the fact that he is there encouraging the brothers suggests, as I was alluding to before, that there were likely other stories in Philippi. There there were other believers now, as as they're ready to leave, there were others that were there. But these are the three that Luke tells us about. Lydia, wealthy woman, slave girl, don't even get her name, and a jailer, middle-class man. So the question remains, why these three? Why just these three? Why not everybody else? Why didn't we hear all of the stories? Well, as we answer that question, we will see not just is the power of Jesus sufficient for liberating us and freeing us, it's also sufficient for unifying us as well. I believe it's because Luke wants to show us the unifying power of Jesus. It's on display here. Luke's writing, as he writes, he writes the book of Acts, he also writes his gospel, and in his writing, he seems to be particularly concerned about the the social and economic distinctions that separate people. He's often pointing them out. And he's even more concerned about how the gospel is able to bring people together in a society that tends to divide and wants to keep others apart. The unifying power of the gospel is on display. 
And to me, it's one of the most surprising things about Jesus in this text. His uncanny ability, not just ability, but intentionality in bringing people from different walks of life together. Different ages, different races, different classes, different giftings and personalities, having them be united. Because we have to remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross to make one new man, not multiple, one. You just look at the story and you see differences in these characters all over the place. They, were, they had different nationality. Lydia was from Asia Minor. She was an immigrant into Philippi. The slave girl was likely Greek and a resident. Could have, could have been a foreigner. However, if she was, Luke likely would have told us because he made that obvious in the other story. The jailer, likely as other jailers at the time, a retired soldier, an army veteran, as such, most assuredly a Roman citizen. Nationally, they were different. Socially, they were different. Lydia, a budding entrepreneur, a wealthy woman. Obviously, she's successful. She's able to afford a large house to immediately invite these individuals in. At the end, there's a lot of people at her house. She's obviously successful. She has means. The slave girl, completely opposite end of the social spectrum, could not get any lower socially than she is, doesn't own anything, not even her life. And the jailer, he's stuck somewhere in the middle, middle-class man, just trying to work his way up the ladder. Not a glamorous job, likely just a member of the respectable middle class in the area, socially all over the place. The, the unique needs that these individuals have are diverse as well. They're different. Lydia, she has sort of an intellectual need. She keeps listening. And God, the grace of God comes down. And the Bible says that it, it opened her heart so that she could hear the words that were being spoken. She had a, an intellectual need. God had to work on her to open her up so she could hear and understand. The slave girl had a, a psychological need. She's possessed, not in her right mind. She's possessed by a demon, a totally different need, spiritually. The jailer had sort of a a moral need, lived a life full of fear, avoiding failure at all costs. So their nationality was different. Socially, they're different. The needs that they bring to the table are different. Yet Luke calls these people, our attention to these people who couldn't be more different from one another. He calls them brothers. They're now united in Christ. They they belong to the same family. And there's no hierarchy anymore in this family. They, They all belong together. They all share the same need, essentially. John Stott, when speaking about this text, says, it would be hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, spiritually, the world's apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. All three of them. As, as Luke is writing this, what he wants us to see is the only way that is possible. It is not possible apart from the grace of God. Who's the most likely one to be converted in the text? Who do you think? Just reading the three characters, who would you, on paper, who looks like the most likely one to be converted? 
Probably Lydia. She's called a worshiper of God. She's the one who has some spiritual interest. She's committed to prayer. Shows up at a location on a regular basis to pray with others. She seems to be the obvious one. However, Luke makes it abundantly clear that even though on paper it all looks right, it was the Lord who opened her heart. Apart from God's grace, she didn't stand a chance. It didn't matter what she brings to the table. It doesn't matter how successful she is or how big her home was. Apart from the grace of God, she's a woman in need. She's not saved because of what she brings to the table, because of what God has done for her. There's a slave girl. She's not seeking God. God's seeking her. And through his grace, the works of the apostles, he sets her free, liberates her. And the jailer comes to Jesus through an earthquake, a vocational crisis, and a failed suicide attempt. Not looking for God, but God was looking for him. Grace leads to personal freedom and radical openness. When the grace of God comes crashing into our lives, the walls that we have built up that divide us, that keep us apart, they come down. Grace now becomes our operating system. It's the way that we conduct ourselves. It's the way that we walk. God was gracious to us. And as we see others in our path, neighbors, members of this church, people who bear God's image, it's the way that we interact with them as well. His grace flows through us. Uh, it's, it's obvious in our day and age. Unity and diversity, everybody wants in on that, it seems like, right? Unity and diversity. Great things. The world around us says they value it as well. But they have a very different sort of means by which they achieve it. The world around us simply says, it's a law. You must pursue diversity. You must hire this person. You must complete that training. It is mandated, and there's no way around it. And if you do try to get out of it, guess what? We'll cancel you. The way that Jesus creates it, he recognizes the law isn't going to do it. The only way for it to happen, real and meaningful way, is the way of grace. Grace says, love those who aren't like you because that's what God did for you. Amen? That's what God did for me. God's grace and his grace alone is what erases the distinctions that we build up to keep ourselves apart from each other that often separates us. The truth is, we are all sinners in desperate need of God's grace. And his grace is sufficient. And as it comes flooding into our life, the only appropriate response is to let it pass right on through and extend it to those around us. It's a beautiful picture, this product of grace, this church that we're given in Philippi. It's exactly what they are, a product of God's grace. And Parkview East, it's precisely what we are as well. For the sake of time, I want to have you, with your Bibles, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want you to see that God's power 
wasn't just enough to bring them together, but it was also sufficient to work through them to accomplish his purposes. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through, 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Of where? Macedonia. Who's he talking about? Church of Philippi. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, this tiny church, he's saying, had hard times. Things weren't easy. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Listen to this. Do those things go together in our world, in our mind today? Their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means. So I can testify, and beyond their means, of their accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This is what this church becomes. A church that's, God's, that's governed by God's grace. They've been saved by his grace, and now they operate by his grace, and they give freely, even though they're a struggling church, even though they're they're a church that's been tested, that's experienced affliction. They're a church that understands the transforming effect that the grace of God has. And they become, as a result, a model, a model for us. Go over to verse 9. Some of you will be familiar with this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, by his, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This church, united by the power of Jesus, becomes a model of what, what God's grace, the effect it can have, not just in a church, but through a church. Might he use us in a similar way? We're not huge, these campus. There's many talented and gifted people here, but the one thing we have going for us is not what we bring to the table. It's allowing this church to be a conduit of God's grace as it works among us and through us. Just one, I mean, there's so many connections as you read through this passage in Acts 16. What I think is so encouraging to me is that What this little church at Philippi, what Paul and Silas did as they moved into this region was nothing flashy. What's what's unique about the strategy is before this, when he goes to places, he's usually standing in front of a large crowd proclaiming the gospel, maybe at a synagogue or in a public square. It's just individually that this is happening. Him and a businesswoman. Him and a slave girl. He's annoyed. (laughs) A jailer. It's not a huge platform. But what they are doing is what God calls us to do as well. If you go through each of the story, you can see a thread, two sort of strands woven. In each situation, prayer is the setting. They are prayerfully dependent on the Lord. 
They go to a place of prayer. They're, they're on a way to pray when the slave girl, the encounter of the slave girl. And then in the jail, the setting is prayer and singing hymns. And the other thing that they do in every single situation is they prayerfully depend on the Spirit as they proclaim his word. They're speaking God's word. They're speaking God's word every single time. They're faithful to the gospel. Might we follow that example as well? Let's pray, church. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And just thank you for this, man, this wonderful church that was started in Philippi. And what a, what a, what a great example they are and have become for us. But more importantly, what an amazing picture they are of your power at work. Lord, we, we just cry out to you this morning. We ask that we, we want to see your power at work among us as well. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have already brought us together, unified us by the, the blood of Jesus. Lord, we just give you thanks and praise for that. And we just, we ask that you would work through us, Lord. Help us to understand the grace that we've received. And it would, it would sort of chart our path forward, Lord, as we love on each other and as we care for those around us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.